Welcome to the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced runner and running physiotherapist. I created this podcast not only so I had an excuse to talk running each and every week, something that I love to do, but more importantly, this podcast gives me the opportunity to interview fellow runners, friends and health professionals in a relaxed and easygoing format. This podcast is designed for the everyday runner, so we can all live, learn, grow and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 20 of the Run Culture Podcast. This week I go over week five of my lead up to the two bays trail run and the training that I did. And I also chat to Campbell Maffett. So Campbell Maffett, I wanted to get on for a, a couple of reasons and I and I go over them later in the show. But he's a masters runner, he's got kids, he's um, a coach, he's heavily involved with running in Victoria. He's had a long career in running and I just wanted to get a few tips on how to go about the two bays trail run because he's done it quite a fair bit in the past. So I hope you enjoy the show. I hope you enjoy my chat with Campbell. Um, here it is. Enjoy. Hi guys, welcome back to episode five of the little journal I'm using to document my lead up to the two bays trail run uh this week was week five of training and it was a great week i i burnt the candle a bit at both ends over the weekend uh because i ended up doing the gold rush trail race as i said i was going to do and then i did a really early long run on sunday so what happened was i left work on friday at about eight o'clock and then got to my brother's house in ballarat by 11 at night and stayed the night at his place and then woke up early about six ish and got ready for the gold rush trail run and got to Hepburn Springs at about 7 30 met my mum mum was coming up to do the race as well which is great because it was a point to point race so I left my car at the finish we took hers to the start and then we were off so the first four or five k's was um, really, really cool um, to for me to experience because it was quite a technical trail, lots of rocks, crevices, stairs, and I'd never really run those that kind of terrain at pace. I had the peg trails on that I've been loving, and they gave me that nice grip. And I had Liam Heming, Hemingway behind me, a, a, a friend of mine from Frankston. Uh, he's a, a coach down Frankston Way, and he was doing his first 24 sort of K uh, trail race as well. And he was putting a lot of pressure on me from behind for the first four or five K. So we were, we were going pretty pretty quick, about 420s over this really rough, gnarly terrain. And I overshot one corner, in particular ended up in a bush. And, and then Liam, being the good guy he is, helped pull me back up onto the course. And then we got going again. Then I just had a, a sense that he was sort of, respecting that it was a 24k race at about 4 or 5k and he started to give me a bit of room and and then I could sort of relax a little bit and make sure I didn't break an ankle because some of those rocks we were leaping down or or crevices we were charging through you could definitely break an ankle so 
I mean, that was that was the fun part about it. It felt like a roller coaster almost, uh, a ride. And yeah, definitely um, got the adrenaline going, and and that's what made it fun. Like I was, I was almost um, yelling like a, at some of the downhills. I was um, almost um, screaming like it was a roller coaster, um, uh, and even holding my breath and exerting a lot of power just to control my body as I was going down these really steep downhills with rocks, like just kind of one scared that I was going to fall over and two just trying to um you just had to use a lot of muscle to control your body so that it stayed on the beaten trail and and you controlled it down the hill and you didn't fall over um anyway after about four or five k it did sort of flatten out onto some more gentle up and down trail that soon led to the Dalesford Lake and we did a hot lap of that and Got some, got my pace down, so got it down from 420s to about 408s eventually. Then we ducked down around onto some more trail, which eventually led us up to about the 16k mark, where uh, we went through a few river crossings, about three river crossings, and because they were after some steep downhills, there was no other option but to go through these rivers, and my shoes got quite wet um, and heavy. And um, that was just another element of fatigue from the race. And, yeah, I was finding my legs were getting really tired um, later in the race. So about 17, 18, 19K legs were getting pretty tired from the rough terrain. Uh, although I was still on pace, I was still on 408s. And I knew the course record was 140 by Nick Van Rapport last year. And I knew Nick Earl ran 141 last year as well. And uh, from my mathematical calculations at the time I was like oh I'm, I'm gonna crack 140 here but then little did I know is the last four or five k was net uphill and there was very little re- reprieve on those uphills and slowed down a fair bit and yeah ended up finishing the race at 413s and won the race by 10 minutes in one hour 42 40 something and uh but yeah it was really wrapped with the race and uh, ended up winning uh, a camel pack, which is going to be great for two bays. So apparently it's a really top, top-notch, um, high-quality camel pack and got some V-Fuel goose, uh, salted caramel and apple goose. Uh, so they're interesting. And then got a bottle of wine and a gold pan, which uh, my dog Remy thought was a dog bowl as soon as we got home. So that's his dog bowl now. Uh Anyway, after that, went for coffee with mum, which was a great highlight of the trip, and she enjoyed the, the run as well and had a good debrief with mum. Then it was the long drive home, so had a, made sure I had um, a coffee or two for the way home. Then it was my work Christmas party, and so I wasn't able to go to Zatapec and ended up streaming Stewie McSwain um, sneakily during the uh, work function and... Uh, oh, that was an incredible race, wasn't it? To see him do the Australian record and Paddy Tien and go all the way as well and for Stewie to run 27-23 for 10K, that's just phenomenal. The atmosphere looked great at Box Hill and to see all the guys and the, uh, and the fans out on the track, it looked like a huge win for Australian distance running. Then uh, after that technical and heavy trail the day before, I was... Up early uh, at about uh, three o'clock, I set my alarm and boy, that was hard. It was pitch black outside. Got to the bottom of Arthur's seat, 
Latrobe Parade car park and met John Dutton, um, a good friend of mine who has got kids, so that's why he was up early to try to fit his long run in. And luckily enough, he had a head torch and we were off by at about 3.50 in the morning. So for 90 minutes, we ran in the dark and we covered, or I covered 41 Ks at a very slow pace, about 5.48s, but it was just to fit a four-hour run in in the morning over pretty specific terrain for Two Bays Trail um, because then I was off to the pick dad up to go to the President's Cup with my two brothers and, and two very close family friends, Andy and Dave Parker. Uh, loved the golf, couldn't see much for the for first half of it because we were too small and uh, it was packed um, just at Royal Melbourne. Uh, but we soon uh, worked out what to do and sat at hole 14 and watched all the groups go through and got to see Tiger Woods. But, yeah, back to that uh, long run. Uh, that's the earliest I've ever run. And, um, you know, a benefit was that it added an extra element of fatigue. And so I ran 41Ks in a very fatigued state, not to mention I did the race the day before. I covered another 1,000 metres of climbing uh, I had uh, my camel, my new camel pack on, and uh, was practicing drinking from that. Uh, it was great to have John there. We had um, a great chat uh, for uh, a good two hours, and then he had to he had to shoot off because he only had three hours of running. Uh, but yeah, it was just one that I just wanted to get through, tick off, and then went to the golf. And then by five o'clock that night, got home, and I was pretty poor company for Jess, so I I went for a two hour nap in the Arvo, um, and then uh, still was feeling pretty bad because it was really only about, that was um, only really got about four hours sleep uh, Saturday night and then had a couple of hours there. So I had a good sleep Sunday night, about nine hours, but really uh, it, it was burning the candle at both ends and I knew it. So on the cards I had an easier week just so that I re- could recover. So I didn't session until Thursday this week and did a whole heap of easy jogging. So Monday... After work, I got out for 70 minutes with uh, Jess Dunsmore and Lockie Eno, two guys I coached just along the Cool Stores Trail in Mount Eliza at 456s. And we worked, We found out that Jess had been drafted um, in the Steigen 1 competition uh, for the 21st of December. There's a meet just down at John Landy Aft's track where there's going to be about eight teams uh, of of um, about 10 athletes um, going against each other in this elimination format of racing. And Jess got drafted by the Morton team and Jess is a smoky. So it was so good to have him drafted and it's so good for athletics to have a competition like this where there is $46,000 worth of prize money and um, there's that team atmosphere and there's been a lot of people getting into it and just talking about it and wondering how people, different athletes will f- fare in the format. So great for Australian distance running. Then Tuesday uh, I had uh, um, an easy 20-minute warm-up and warm-down uh, uh, at Ballon Park um, with the guys that I coach. Then um, they they just did a, a nice um, speed session, sort of replicating for Jess the Steigen format. Then I went to work and did some work. I then did a gym session and then did an easy 60 minutes that night. Wednesday, I woke up and just did a 90-minute 
long run and the plan was to go to the Cape Shank Trail and go to Bonio Road and practice the sandy detour that I need to learn for the Two Bays Trail. Unfortunately, uh, I, I got lost, so I wasn't able to tick off the detour, but I covered about 60 minutes in Green's Bush and I had the camel pack on again, practiced drinking from that and just ran at a nice easy pace, sort of just under five minutes per K, so about 4.58. And then I got back to Bonio Road and the plan was to do half an hour at a strong pace, like like pretty much race pace, uh, for 15 minutes towards the lighthouse and then 15 minutes back. And I found it quite hard actually and and I, I reached about 4.22s, but that pace, and I don't know if it's fatigue from the weekend and the training that I've been doing and just burning the candle at both ends, but that pace didn't feel like 56K pace. And yeah, suffice to say it was over the hard, one of the harder uh, undulating sandy parts of the trail where you can't really get much momentum. So I can't read too much into the pace, but the effort certainly felt hard and an effort that I wouldn't be able to sustain for 56K. I'd definitely have to have a few easier patches than that. But yeah, got it done and it was just another ugly looking sort of training session, but quite specific to two bays. So didn't look pretty on Strava, but I think I got a fair bit out of it, to be honest. And and the legs are really getting stronger. Like uh, after the weekend, after two really hard trail trail runs so the race and that 40k over trail my stabilizers were really tired and sore for monday and tuesday and they weren't as sore um on this wednesday run but i'm definitely finding on my easy jogs on the flat when i run downhill i'm just that much more stronger already like i feel like i've got that muscle control i'm not slapping the ground i just feel feel on top of it and and feel like I know what I'm doing when I'm running downhill and I'm not out of control. So it's been uh, really interesting. So it's definitely going to be a part of my running that I appreciate a bit more, the importance of trail and and maybe incorporating it in my running and other people's running down the track when I feel like it's necessary. After Wednesday, where I covered 19Ks at, on an average of 440s for the whole run, uh, for 90 minutes, uh, and that last section was just 420s. Uh, it was Thursday, and uh, I just did an easy 20-minute warm-up, 20-minute warm-down with the guys I coach, and and I also did the session this time. So unlike uh, at Ballon Park on Tuesday where I chose not to do the session and just recover just to try to let the body reboot after a tough weekend um, on and off the training track, uh, with you know Christmas parties and late nights and lack of sleep and then just hard hard training, I made sure I didn't do Tuesday, but I did Thursday, and I was cherry ripe to do Thursday. So I just did a light quarter session with a couple of guys that I felt like needed it. So Lockie, I'm really trying to work on his aerobic fitness, and we just covered quarters in fifteen forty six. So that's just eight four hundreds in seventy three off a two hundred meter float recovery in forty five seconds. And, uh, yeah, we, we did really well. And then I had um, a couple of the other boys, Joel McGill and Ned Buxton, do the session as well, just at a slightly slower pace. And Jess was uh, fine-tuning for Steigen, just doing a few 200s. Later that day, I saw a few – I, I um, treated and um, did a bit of work. And then I 
Um, did a gym session, uh, hard gym session again, really tough, pushed myself in the gym, just really trying to strengthen these legs and an easy jog with with my dog, Remy, um, just along Seaford Foreshore, just for 7K, really slow pace, five minute per K in the heat. And then it was today where I did another easy jog in the morning, just an hour with, with my dog, Remy, uh, yeah, just along the cool stores, rail trail. And then it's a pretty easy day, a bit of a recovery day because I've got a busy weekend full of Christmas festivities off the Shep to see um, uh, Jess's mum and her side, family Christmas. And then it's um, my dad's side's family Christmas the next day in Mornington. So a lot of driving, a lot of um, Christmas stuff and a lot of Christmas celebrating and eating. So it's going to be hard to fit some training in this weekend, but I've got a bit of a plan uh, where I'll hopefully uh, do a bit of a workout early tomorrow morning um, and and then do perhaps the Sunday session late in the afternoon after the Christmas festivities. So that's the plan at the moment anyway. Anyway, I'll touch more on that next week. I hope you all enjoy this week's episode with Campbell Maffett. I wanted to get Campbell on um, for a few different reasons. One, he's a master's runner and uh, I wanted to get um, a few tips on how he's been able to keep his running going and sustain his running as he's got older. He's also got two young kids and I wanted to know how he's been able to still fit running in and and not, not decline and let his running go. Um, and, and how he's juggled, you know, that family life and being a great father and enjoying the, you know, the life of having kids and, and what they provide, but then also still being able to enjoy running and how he's done that. Then I also just wanted to get um, a bit of an insight on his career and also his experience with two base trail run and the six foot track race and a bit of insight there. Great interview, really love chatting to him, so passionate about running, also quite a good running coach and heavily involved with athletics in Victoria, so I hope you enjoy the chat. Anyway, here he is, Campbell Maffitt. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so you were sort of IT and now you're into teaching. Yeah, I worked in IT for the best part of 30 years and um, was made redundant and just things things allowed to make a career change and um, jumped into primary teaching. Um, this year's just been a year of uh, doing relief teaching just without getting a, a, a classroom job, um, which has been good because it's given me a lot of experience uh, standing in front of kids and sort of feeling a little bit comfortable with, with them and knowing how preps are different to year five, five sixes and, and so on. Um, yeah. Uh, but it's got drawbacks as well because you don't have that continuity of contact with kids, and you might very often you feel like you're just glorified babysitting or yeah. child mining, um, which is that's not what I got into it for. I got into it because really largely motivated by coaching because I love the process and the journey you go through through uh-huh. coaching um, and teaching, especially primary teaching is like that where you get a, a group of kids early in the year and. Over the course of the year, you see them grow and develop and, and evolve, hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's the same in coaching. And in coaching, you've got, in any group, you've got people of all different ranges and abilities and motivations and, and, and whatnot. Um, and it's the same in a classroom. that You've just got so many, such a variety. Uh, perhaps the difference is with coaching, you're coaching a group, all the people pretty much want to be there. Uh-huh. Um, 
in a primary school, sometimes you don't, I don't know if they all want to be there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of a lot of parallels. Um, so hopefully, when I do get my own classroom, it'll be really nice and to be able to set a bit of a of of a feel and a vibe to yep. to, um, to the to the classroom, just um, for behaviour management point of view and just the relationship point of view and how the yep. classroom sort of works. Um, hopefully, that's you know, what when I get a classroom, I'll be able to do that, and um, rather than just coming in and sort of childminding other people's kids. Nice. And is that next year? Is that on the cards, or are you still going to do? Uh, no, until I'm, I've applied for roles, I haven't got any yet. So at yep. this stage, I'll just be doing more release teaching next year. Which um, my daughter starts school in um, next year as well. So we have two kids, kids at school. So it'll give more flexibility um, with with release teaching. When three thirty comes around, you're finished for the day, and you can just you can head off. So that's the upside of it. Is you don't have all the all the after school stuff of reports or tests or parents or things like that so it's it's got got pro, it's got that that's the upside is to yeah, have yeah. flexibility so and um, with Leah's first year at school that'll that'll work in quite well nice so um, so yeah and you've got the two kids um eddie and Leah. Eddie and Leah, yeah five and seven so um eddie's just offered his last day at school this morning my, my wife's home on friday so she it's her job to take him to school this morning and Lily goes up as well. They stop for a cup of coffee on the way back home, which is their little routine. And yeah. he's finishing grade one and off to grade two next year, um, and which would be good. So, yeah, um, yeah, life with kids, it never, it never stays the same, that's for sure. They will grow yeah. and evolve and um, become their own little people, which is um, yesterday I was home with Leah, which was really nice to have one-on-one time with, with yeah. one of the kids. Um, yeah. Just to see her... Well, we're having lunch. She was standing up on the chair, singing her um, kinder songs and dancing, and it's just really cute to see <laughs> these innocent people at that young age. They just don't have any of that sort of self awareness or self um, self consciousness that yep. you know, older, older people have. So they just they just do things and they're just natural and they're who they are. And um, um, and you can't just like you can't coach them at that age. You, or same same thing. You can't. Um, it's hard to teach them because they just they are who they are. They got no filter. They just they got yeah. They got no filter. They just are who they are. They're raw. Yeah, and, uh, and, raw. That's, and that's the beauty of little kids. Uh, at all ages, they just are who they are. And I'm not sure when they're going to lose their innocence. Yeah. Somewhere, somewhere through, probably grade three or four. I'm guessing they become yeah. a bit more self conscious about who they are and their image, what what they're portraying and stuff. So and caring about that, but which is good. But then you don't. Yeah, you want it to stay innocent for a little while, but that's not going to last. They serve them for the rest of their life though. Oh, that that's great! Like just listening to your talk, you can sort of see why you went into the teaching, um, uh, like av- avenue and, and the coaching avenue. Um, uh, that sort of like I don't know, like that h- helping people and um, uh, like trying trying to um, I suppose uh, make sure people uh, I teach people to learn and um, grow. Um, you can see that already just from listening to you, like after a couple of minutes, you're quite passionate about that. Yeah, it's sort of, I just like that. Uh, as, I'm, as I'm an introvert, I like um, yeah. helping other people um, uh-huh. and you know, just helping them on their journey. And um, it doesn't always mean you have, you have to be their best friend, but you just mean to be their best ally and their best the person, someone in their corner. Yep. Um, it's, that's really, that's, that's an important thing about sort of a journey through life is, you know, I don't, it's not, it'd be pretty, pretty weird to have for a seven year old to have a 50 year old best friend. But yeah. if I, if I can, if I can help him and you know, be there for him and 
you know, and talk to him and do stuff, then then that's sort of what I think is being is is really good. And that's something we learned through through university was that you don't we want to be the best friend of kids at school. You just want to be there be there for yep. them and give them some guidance and some straighten their shoulders in the right direction and point them and give them some feedback and reflect things to them. Um, so same same thing with kids, but with kids obviously a lot closer to them than, than uh, anyone you teach at school. Cool. Well, I might just um, give you a bit of an introduction. Um, yep, cool. Yep. So, um, um, so uh, yeah, I wanted to get you on the podcast, um, particularly um, because you've got an extensive triathlon and running history. Um, you're a coach of the Love the Run group. Um, you're also um, turned 50 this year, so you're a master's runner um, and you have have run for a while uh, and then I also wanted to get a bit of an idea of what it is like um, to, to run as you get older and also what you've found has worked. Um, I also wanted to talk about what it's like fitting in running around having two young kids um, and talk about a little bit about Eddie's journey um, uh, and also, um, after my podcast episode with Rowan Day, um, the race organiser of the Two Bays Trail Run coming up, he did mention that um, you're really good at race predictions and um, for the event. Um, so I wanted to get a little bit of um, uh, inside knowledge on how you feel the 28K race stacks up this year and then also um, your experience with the trail run scene as well. Sounds good. So, yeah. Um, to to start off with, uh, uh, how did you get into running? <laughs> oh, I guess um, I've been I know active all my life. I grew up on a farm, so on the farm you just have to you know shut up and get on do the work. So we just lived an outdoor and active lifestyle. But um, and during school, I just always loved being involved in sports and sports days and um, in primary school and doing the footy relay or the tag relay and stuff like that was a lot of fun. And then when we got to high school, we actually started to have more formal um, sports days. And I remember <clears throat> I was in year seven doing 800 metres, which I think I, I won. And I realised, wow, I can actually run a bit. Um, yeah. So it was really from then on that I sort of enjoyed, enjoyed running, I guess, because I could do it. Um, something that that I was in control of as well. Um, I love I played footy and tennis and a lot of other sports at the same time. But um, as I went on, I liked that I, I was in control and it was a it was a physical challenge that it, it was there was some skill in it. But it was really you know the the harder you worked and the harder you went, the better you got, the better results you got. Um, yeah. And that sort of stuck with me through. I'm in, I'm in charge and I'm in control and you know I can go out at 4:30 in the morning. I don't have to rely on anybody to to meet up because I can still do something compared to say you know some other sports or, or going to places to train yeah um so I've really been running since probably about since year seven so that's coming up on well, 37 or 38 years now um <laughs> and sort of had had sort of peaks and troughs during that time but um there's a period during the 90s where I didn't run quite so much but I was still active and bike riding around I had years of doing triathlons and stuff but um, all the way through that, always saw myself as a runner who was doing triathlons rather than a triathlete through and through. Um, yep. Running was always always where my heart was um, and was always my strength. And it was my happy place. When I got off the bike, I thought, well, here's, 
here's where I am. I'm, this is my, my home, my home territory and, you know, whatever's gone down in the last swim in the bike, then, um, that's all over with. Cause yeah, yeah. Cause show me, show me the road ahead. Um, yeah, so I've been running for a long time. Um, so, and just, I just love, love the process, love being able to run. Yeah. And, um, so in those formative years, say like, what about a late teenager? Um, did you have a run group and how did you go, um, uh, with your running at sort of in your teenage years? Yeah, during um, I changed school in year eleven to go to a, a private a private boarding school, um, which was really good because that was more of a, a closed sort of environment, if you like, with with a good with a coach there, and we did uh, workouts during track season in particular, during cross country. Um, that was the year when I stopped playing footy and just did running. Our cross country coach was the arts teacher, so and he really didn't he was. He, was very, he just wasn't a runner. He was just more of the coordinator of the cross country team. So we just, yep. on our training nights, we just went out and built it out, built it out down the roads, and came back, and that was our training really. So it was quite <laughs> unstructured. But then when we got to um, got to track season, it was what was more structured, and um, we were doing track sessions and so on. But I don't remember remember a lot of the details about what we did, other than you know we did a lot of I was a lot faster then than I am now. Um, not that I had much speed then either. Yeah, um, I think because of that real focus on speed that you that you need for for track, which was great. And then when I left school, I jumped headfirst into triathlons because um, I'd known about that during school, but was sort of held back by being a boarder. Um, but <clears throat> once the gates were gates were open after boarding school, I jumped into triathlons and just still kept running and just was really running on my own. And in that first year out of school, I ran I think thirty two, thirty nine at the Atsvik, um 10k at Sandown, the famous course over there where, where Deeks and Monas and those yeah, okay. big dogs would, 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 would face off and you get 20 or 30 people running under 30 minutes and it was just crowds and crowds of people. But um, So as a raw 17-year-old, I ran 32, 39, just really off the back of, I'm not sure what training I did actually. but um, yeah, That's a great time. Yeah, I, I look back and it was, I'm really proud of it. God, if I could run that fast now, I'd be, be over the moon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And then I came back, came back a year later and ran thirty two twenty when I was just just eighteen. And, okay. um, and we, had a, we had a separate race then for the under under twenties, I think it was. So we didn't run with the with the big crowds, which was good because we were able to watch them. And I remember then Deeks was at the, the top of his game and Monas was coming through. And because I was from Ballarat, Monas was kind of my my hometown favourite guy. And to see them face off and you know, being in the in the in the same area code as those people just to spectate was a real you know, um, fanboy moment and realizing just how good these guys were on the big, on the world stage. And here they are running at our local, um, local races. And that just fires your motivation to want to be involved in the numbers of people who are running well back then was really motivating too. So I sort of stumbled my way through. I don't remember being in really any training groups or training squads at that time. I was, um, as I have through most of my life, been a bit more of an individual sure. trainer. Um, yep. And, um, well, I, I like training with groups. Um, I just, I also like the solidarity, solidarity of it. Um, yep. And, you know, the, the loneliness of the long distance runner rings true for me, through and through, especially these days. So, sure. Yeah. And then um, I, I was yeah, running in, tr- training with tri- some triathletes, sort of in ad hoc sessions rather than being a structured plan. And back in the 80s, late 80s, it wasn't really the structure and definition around what constituted triathlon training then? It was just you go and swim, bike, and run, and um, and front up and race on race day. Without we didn't have the sort of the 
the methodology and the approaches of, of how to periodize or, or the like during those times. It just went hard all the time. Yeah, okay. What school did you board at? I went to Geelong Grammar down in Corio. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. And so then was, after that, you went back to Ballarat, was it? Oh, yeah, we were from a farm just outside of Ballarat, uh-huh. um, um, which is really where I started running, on the, which was quite, I look back at it now because we were, um, you don't realise at the time you just go out and do what you've got to do. And um, I remember running on the country road in the dark, um, being, where with, with no headlights, no nothing, just running on the side of the road. And if a car came towards you, you'd just jump off onto the, to the, the grass or the gravel beside the road so you could get hit by this car coming towards you. And, and I'd map out my routes by using the, my geography skills and the, yeah. the 100,000 in one map and using the little ruler to measure out how far the different segments were and adding it up to find out how long my loops were. <laughs> um, and getting some distances that way and my clock was looking at the kitchen clock when I left home and then coming in quickly and looking at the kitchen clock when I got back from home to work out how long I've been running for. <laughs> um, and doing another one, I remember doing, doing hill reps in a paddock because you live on the side of the hill um, and you're with, amongst the sheep and dodging the sheep poo and um, up and down the hills, but also trying not to meet, step in the rabbit burrows at the same time. So yep. those are kind of the things you do as a kid. You know, when you're out, out in the countryside, we're left to your own devices trying yep. to um, make your way. And um, I was guided by Rob DeCostello's first book, I think called DeCostello on Running, which I used to literally sleep with under my pillow because <laughs> it was my Bible for at that time. And um, so Dix was just, you know, he, he, he could have walked on water for all I knew. Um, yep, yep. And so now to sort of to, or to know his brother, Anthony, and to run against him at school was like, oh, this is Dixon's brother, is I've got to take, you know, and he's racing against me. How good is this? And, um, yeah. yeah, it was in, in the era, you know, when you're young and you're very impressionable, those are the people who you look up to and they shape your, shape your perspective. Sure. And, and yeah. so did mum or dad run or, um, and then also, like, how did you get into triathlons? Yeah, no, mum and dad didn't run. They played other sports. They played tennis was our main sport we did as a family. So I did a lot of tennis and um, we had tennis courts most of the places we lived and set up walls against the side of sheds to to hit balls against. Um, So, no, they weren't really sporty. Um, My older brother was, um, so I perhaps took a lead from him. He he did a lot of um, off-road sports, sort of... um, uh, adventure racing and trail trail events, um, which yeah. there weren't many of back in those days. But I was sort of impressed impressed by him. But but I think what I what I remember I first heard about triathlons was would have been in the early eighties, and the a current affairs show that I think it's still called Seven Thirty Report had a profile of this person who was doing the Hawaii Ironman, which back then was a real novelty. I remember watching this program and just being absolutely flabbergasted that someone could do all this 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 one event. Um, but I was also thought, wow, that's, that's a challenge. You know, that's um, like, you know, climb a mountain and look for the next high flying and climb that one. It was sort of how, yeah. how, how big a challenge can you take on and how, how far can you get into it and how, how far can you go and how hard it, can it be? So I was always looking for not the easy way, but you know, the, the honest, hard way. So um, yeah. I wasn't, I'm not, a, I'm not a hack kind of person you know yeah um, that, that sort of hat culture is not me because i want to you know do it the hard way and go down the road of hard knocks to find out what's what's the way that you know you get the most satisfaction from from um from trying and failing and trying again and so yeah. i thought just seemed like that it sort of had all these this you know challenges part and parcel of it um i wanted to take that on just because i thought well that's the hardest thing i can see that i can do yeah um 
so it sort of ticked all my boxes. Um, so I was during school. I did I did my first triathlon when I was you know, in 1985, and and then but I was sort of biding time at school because you can't you really limit it there. And then I finished school in in '86. Um, it was like let me let this as, as quick as I can. And um, early days were because as soon as school finished, we'd be having all sorts of farm jobs like shearing. So we do shearing and helping in the shearing shed all day, then going out and swimming in our dam because we didn't have any swimming pools nearby and and then doing bike riding and running around the day of working on the farm at home. So just, yeah, because it was a challenge. I just like a challenge. Yeah. Oh, that's what attracts me to running as well. Just that, especially when you achieve something that you didn't think was possible and, um, yeah, uh, then you sort of mentioned that you you sort of did less running during the nineties, um, and then in late in the late nineties um, through to two thousand, you got got back into running a bit. Um, what 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 sort of um, caught your attention, and why did you go away from the sport? Yeah, I don't know. I got a little bit of um, a little bit of mental burnout, perhaps a few mental issues, some mental yep. health problems. Looking back at the time, um, and it sort of maybe took through the nineties and late nineties when the penny dropped and things just sort of started to fall into place mentally and in, get into a better mental space um, with all sorts of body body image issues and, and yep. related stuff. And, and I remember, I do remember distinctly one day when I, when I realised, what am I doing? And just got myself back on track. Yep. Um, anyway, but I was I always saw myself as a bit of a runner um, or as a runner and then got back into running and um, through my club at the time, which was Athletics Essendon, where I was, I was secretary for a few years, um, one of our star runners was Anne Cross uh, at the time, and her sister was Mark Crowley, who was the former Australian 1500 metre record holder. And anyway, I started training with Anne on Tuesdays and Thursdays around the town and sort of, you know, um, kind of invited myself into their group, but um, was at the same time they, they welcomed me, and I was just a bit of a, a training buddy, sort of whipping boy, and I sort yep. of clung to them more, more, I clung to them more than they clung to me. And yep. so I started training with them sort of pretty regularly on and was under, she was coached by Chris Wardlaw at the time. So I met him and was sort of hanging out in the circles of runners quite a lot back then, which was really nice to see these people from the other Simon Fields to Hayley McGregor and um, Pam Turney's group and all the runners in those areas. And um, also through my connections with the club, I got to know quite a few people, which was really good times. Um, and so I trained with Anne and, and Kate, Rich, Kate Anderson, or now Kate Richardson, in lead up to the Sydney Olympics. And that was really, really fascinating because from a couple of points of view that they were very good runners. Um, Anne ran 15-20s in a solo race at a state league, um, yes. uh, which was which was fast. It's fast then, it's fast, still fast now. Um, um, so to see how they trained in with their what's, what now call the Australian model of um, monophatic on Tuesday, six quarters on Thursday, and uh, progressive tempo on Saturday and long run on Sunday. And to see, while it was very rigid in its definition, the results that it got and how it actually it varied. It was, it was simple, but it was complex at the same time. And um, I remember clearly with, with Kate, who I think she won the 5,000-metre gold medal at the Kuala Lumpur um, Commonwealth Games. And um, for, for some parts of the year, she just cruised through training and just so to get the sessions done without any real conviction or, or focus. But then yep. when, when they got to the run-up to a major championship or qualifying period, 
first, you know, the, the, she'd, the shackles would come off and yeah. she'd get this laser focus and the intensity and the focus that she'd bring to the sessions would, would just go up, you know, several runs. And that was really eye-opening to see how, you know, when, when, when it was game time, they really brought their A game and, and they, for training and then into racing. And, um, and this, they'd go off to training camps up to Noosa and to Falls Creek where I'd never been and they'd come back and tell me about what they'd done and how good it was up there. And I'd just think, oh, wow, that sounds incredible. Um, for all these runners and the training they were doing. And <clears throat> so this was in the lead up to the, the trials yep. um, for the for the Sydney Olympics, which uh-huh. were in August of 2000. So just only four weeks before the Games. And we went up there and um, they ran the, the 10K or the 5K and 10K. Um, and they both qualified, unfortunately, and were selected. Um, and I had the honour at the same time of, of running the... Um, the my one and only ten thousand meters in yeah. in Australia in the <laughs> Australian Olympic selection trial, which I was to be honest, I was there just to make up numbers. So they had yeah. a, a place that they could call was you know a, a full field. Um, I was left about three or four times. One of yeah. which was, was by Sean Crichton, who's still you know, knocking it out of the park now. So, yep. but nonetheless, we warmed up on the outside track and we went through the call room underneath the stands and came out and did twenty five laps on the track with all the screens and the timing clocks and school kids in the grandstand to, to make up a bit of noise. And it was a real honour and privilege. And um, I ran my one and only, my 5K and my 10K PB in that same race. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I haven't, didn't do many 5Ks, but uh, yeah, the halfway split was 15.52 and then um, uh, then faded to do to 16.52 in the second half to, to come home in 32.45 as a, as a sad and sorry last place finisher in that trial. <laughs> but like that sounds like a pretty amazing time of your life like pretty where you're pretty impressionable and learned a lot about running training and especially like given um earlier in your career you ran a lot by yourself um that that sounds like a great experience um the, then um uh, i've heard that you went on to volunteer at the olympics um but then um you had an unfortunate event um on the day of the opening ceremony yeah, because yeah, I'd been involved and I'd went up to volunteer earlier in the year and I was lined up to volunteer at the at the Olympics. I could have been on a race in the sand pit in the long jump. I don't, I don't know what it was, but it didn't really matter. It just sounded like it was a really good opportunity. And so I was all set to go and um, was excited. But then the week of the opening, I started to get this <clears throat> pain in my stomach, my abs, abdominal area. And um, I'm pretty tough and it takes a lot for me to stop. And it was on the Friday morning of the opening and I wasn't due to go up till the following week to, for the, the athletics and I was at swimming training. And I had to get out of the pool, and which is just unheard of for me to for something to to buckle me over so badly. I had to, to cancel a session. It was really severe, and <clears throat> I never buckled over the showers and changed. And then um, went down to the Alfred Hospital, which is not very far away. I was in the emergency uh, waiting room, and they just doubled over in pain. And they remember me, and I thought, oh, maybe maybe you've got kidney stones or something like that. And while well, I was bent over the end, all of a sudden. What was being a very intense pain just ramped up incredibly. Like, you know, I was having knives stuck in my abdominal. But as it turns out, that's when my, my appendix ruptured. Um, so which confirmed what they thought it might have been was appendicitis. Um, and they quickly filled me up with um, painkillers, which, which knocked me out for a while. And I was transferred and um, had my uh, appendix taken out or what was left of it because it ruptured and they'd sucked it all out of you know, where it ruptured into. Um, and then woke up from anaesthetic during the opening ceremony of the Sydney Olympics, seeing 
the nations walk in and vaguely remembering seeing um what was that young singer anyway doing her Oh yeah, uh, I remember um Nikki Webster. Nikki Webster doing all the little you know, parts of her act. Yeah. There and um and then was in was laid up in hospital with the most intense pain post operation for the first two days, which wasn't too bad because that's when the triathlons were on. And um <laughs> and then just, then, just watch. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was good. Yeah, you sort of you don't you don't want to wish on wish yourself to be in that situation, but still. And then, you know, it was so painful just getting up, just any kind of movement was so, so painful. Um, but I guess because of the, the damage that the, the, rup- and the, the, the rupture of my, ke- my, uh, of my appendix had caused, it was just painful. But it, it recovered pretty quick. And a week later, I was you know, moving pretty well. And, um, but I didn't go up to do the, house, to do the um, volunteering, unfortunately, at Sydney and, um, yeah, stayed back in town, which is the poor consolation. Okay, and that sort of, I suppose that gets us to the year 2000. And um, from there, what what journey did your running or triathlon sort of career take? What what did you do next? Oh, I guess triathlon really ramped up from there um, yeah, okay. in terms of taking my focus. I was still running and running with, with the club and running winter season because I really liked that. That was my, that was what my core was, but it did the triathlons and sort of short course triathlons through the 2002 and went to a few age group world championships and had some good times there, some good experiences, and then um, moved more into long course triathlons from sort of 2002 to 2004 or five. I did my first Ironman in New Zealand in 2005 and qualified for to go to Hawaii Ironman in 2005 and um, went there in 05 and 06, which was great. Um, and then all during that time, I was, I was just in a real rut because I love triathlons, but I thought, oh my god, am I still going to be doing this in um, you know, thirty years? And yep. so wanting to, wanting to, but not wanting to. Um, what, as in, you know, it was too much training, or yeah, it was just very focused. It was yeah. just, you know, I'm, I'm the sort of person, I'm a hundred, hundred percent or nothing kind of person, and yep. so if I couldn't do a hundred percent. I wasn't sure what I would do, and um, but not, but I couldn't see a way out of it. And it's sort of perhaps a rut that some people find themselves in, and I couldn't, I just didn't know how I was, where it was going to end up. You know, what was going to happen and what what would and then until one day I just had this epiphany I thought huh I don't need to do this you know, I, I realized I was putting this pressure on myself and um, it was a real um, awakening because I felt all of a sudden this freedom oh look I don't have to be anything or do anything I'm not no one else's cared cares what I do except me um, and once I realized that it was it was a real freedom to to, to realize, wow, I, I can do what I want. I can, I don't have to do triathlons anymore. And I thought, well, I won't do anymore. I'll just do perhaps one more summer and then um, I'll quit triathlons, which was in 2008, which for me was a big thing because it had dominated my life for so long. Yep. And, um, and then thought, well, I'll just be a runner because that's easy to do because it, it fits in and it's nice and I like it. A bit more balance. A bit more balance, yeah. It's just a really good, um, uh, it's a nice, it's just an easier thing to do. It's just yeah. um, not easier physically, but just logistically. And from a life point of view, it's an easier thing to do. And so yep. then from there, really for the last 11 years, I've just, just focused on running. And um, and the only bike riding I do is dropping my son off at school when we, when we bike ride up there and or maybe riding to the shops. And I haven't been in a swimming pool for eight or nine years, apart from, you know, sliding down water slides and playing with the kids. So, <laughs> yeah, so it was a really lovely... Really, it was a really nice change. And as much as I like triathlons, um, I've moved away from that world. It's sort of, you know, you go through careers and in work 
sense and in other senses and it's the same thing you don't need to be defined and stuck in a rut and it was yeah it was a, yeah, a couple of you know I had a a big epiphany sort of 10 years earlier around sort of myself and my body image and health status and this one was another one around my role in sport and what it was to be what what defined me and what I like to be defined by um, and then I have I had control over that nice um, yeah. yeah which is really message. Yeah, it's really powerful and sort of it's um, – and in this day and age of things like Strava, uh, which another thing which would uh, – which people get, perhaps get stuck in a rut thinking what other people are going to think about me. Yes. Um, that you don't need to, and that's, that's actually a really negative thing. You need to have 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 control over your own destiny. And, yep. um, and that's a hard thing to do because you're – but when you stand back at it and think of it from, from a third-person point of view – no one really cares what you what you do except you. Um, you know, no one's no one's counting on you except maybe if you're meeting for a training session, uh, and they'll support you whatever you do. Yeah. And, um, and you sometimes forget that, and I did I did that too. So sure. yeah, life, sports been a real for me a, a life journey thing, and that's um, so I appreciate it so much. And with my kids, hope that they can experience life through sport a bit. Um, maybe yeah. not to the exclusion of other things, but maybe they will at sometimes. You know. If you want to be good at something, you need a bit of imbalance. Um, but um, it's not it's not a good thing to have ongoing. Yeah, exactly. Well, then um, after that, you retired from triathlon in two thousand and eight. Um, you soon moved over to tra- trail runs, and um, uh, uh, you did the King Island thirty two k in two thousand and ten, and and. Uh, and then just six days later, uh, the six-foot track marathon. Uh, tell us about yeah. that experience and, and what brought you t- to those two events. Yeah, well, I actually did the King Island race the year before in 2009 as well. Okay. Um, I'm not sure how I heard about it, but it's a really – it's a great event. And it's a, it's a quite a small event, but it's got a really good um, atmosphere around it because it's quite a small field of people do it and you have to fly over there. It's quite an isolated place to get to. And the event itself is – a it's a really honest 32 kilometres and it's handicapped so you start at different times and race each other to get to the finish line. You go across the island and they have a big banquet for you on that night and with all sorts of King Island produce and stuff. It's it's a really fun time and um, the two years I went was was really stacked fields. The first year we had a guy, Yaro Tamizkin, who was an Ethiopian, who was Ethiopian, an African guy who was out here at the time. And okay. you know, I came fourth and did one hour 58. The next year I came out, I went over and um, was run by Julian Spence, actually, in 2010. He ran the fastest time. Oh, really? Yeah, but ahead of me, between Julian and me, was um, Brett Coleman, um, someone else. And then I came fourth in an hour 54 for 32K. So, But it was a really, really fun event. And then the other Nick, Six days later, I went up to do six foot track, which is a trail race up in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales that I'd heard about oh, many months before. There was an article in Run for Life magazine about it. Uh-huh. It's a 45k race from Katoomba to Denolan Caves. And so it's point to point, which you know, it's got that novelty around it, but it is an epic race. It's, it's kind of a little bit like to New South Wales, what's what two babies to Victoria in terms of its, its popularity and the culture that it has in the running running community in the running world that yeah, it's okay. a trail race but it's a trail race but it's not it's very runnable so you get a lot of road runners crossing over to do it um and do it quite well no. but it's very it's very defined by the profile of the course that um 
you start the first 500 meters going down a rocky track and you go down these steep steps and another 500 meters. So in the first kilometer, you've really hammered your quads very severely yep. through going, down, going downwards about six or 700 vertical meters. And then you've got two massive climbs of three kilometers at about 10%. Um, yeah, okay. From, um, and then you've... <laughs> we, uh, and then you've got a long sort of false flat for quite a period of time. It's sort of the profile really defines the race, but it is epically hard, but it's a really, really good, good race. It's a good course. It's a hard, hard race to do. And yeah, um, yeah so I went up there sort of unknown and blind in 2010, having run a great race six days before down in King Island over, yeah. over 32 Ks and fronted up and Dave Creedy came second that year and I actually won it in a really good time and um, I found myself this unknown from Victoria, um, Mexican, as I refer to you, and not having seen the course at all, um, surprised myself and came fourth in, in three hours 31, and which was looking back, it was actually, I was really proud of that time and that performance photo. Yeah, oh I've, my God. I've had a bit of a look at the um, times up there because I'm hoping to do it next year as well and um, that's a really competitive time, and, and that's a pretty amazing um, backup six days after your King Island race. Um, yeah, I'd be really proud of that race. Yeah, it was. Um, I was really proud of it, and uh, yeah, not so not knowing and not and looking back on it, and yeah, you, you, something you look back and you realise actually how it did really quite well. Yeah. But, um, there was. I did. I could tell you more talking more offline about the training, but I did a lot of like every weekend was up in the Dandenongs doing. 40k runs in 2,000 meters of a percent. Oh really? Oh yeah, there was a lot of training in that. And then I went back in <clears throat> back in 2012, and I was probably even fitter and, and better then. Um, uh-huh. It was going so so well. I really had my eyes on um, the 40 plus age group record time, um, and that's what I was aiming for. But unfortunately, that was a very wet summer, um, and two days before the race, it was cancelled because there's a river crossing at 15 kilometers, and it was flooded. So it was you just actually couldn't cross and it was dangerous. So yeah, sadly two days before the race was cancelled, which I was absolutely bummed about because I was just I trained so hard and was so fit. And anyway, that that happens. And um, yeah, um, and then went back in 2014 and um, to do it again, but was just a bit a bit overcooked. Um, I'd had a little bit of an injury problem leading in the in the month or so before, and was just uh, I did three hours 53 or so, which is about sort of 25 minutes off what I was hoping for. And, yeah. um, but still, it's just an epic race. It's such a good event. Um, much, like I said, much like two bays because you guess the spirit and the, and the camaraderie and the community that it has around it is, is really great. And it's, uh, yeah, it, it, uh, I'm not sure what the 28, what the two bays 56 K race is like to run, but it, it's, Double and more harder than the twenty eight k. Yeah. <laughs> um. And and then you 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 um said you had a bit of a um you know in, injury sort of um uh, leading into two thousand fourteen. Um, but um, I do know that you you had Achilles surgery in two thousand and ten, and um you've had uh about three surgeries on your left heel. Um. How how's how's that going nowadays? And um, um, how how did that all go um around the time? Yeah, no, I've had I've had three surgeries. Two of them were back in around nineteen ninety ninety one. Um, okay. one was for a chronically inflamed bursa, yeah, which was um which was taken out, which is a great way to avoid having bursitis problems. Yeah, bursa out. Um, and then I'd had some adhesions on the tendon. Um, 
<laughs> they, were, they were pretty close together, those synergies in hindsight. I wish they sort of sorted them both out at the same time. But they were, but they were really successful and got back to running them with no problems at all. And then um, yeah, after, after doing Six Foot Track in 2010, just started developing these, which was in March, started developing this problem with my heel. And then by May, it was sort of becoming pretty bad and went to see a sports doctor and in a very short time frame, um, I had MRI with a specialist and within two weeks' time, I was having surgery on my left my left Achilles for what they call debridement and repair. So it was a bit of a, yep. bit of a service, servicing of my Achilles. Um, uh-huh. And that's been, it was completely successful. And the Achilles is, I've had no, no problems on that side. The main issue I've had from that surgery and from the others was just the weakness and the wasting of my lower leg um, and the lack of strength in my lower leg. And my yep. calf is, Half the size of my right, on my left side, then and my right side, and it's yep. sort of, it's always a bit of a, a point of weakness. Uh, but that, no, that's been really good. So I've had well, nine years of good service out of that. And now um, my body's pretty good, although I've got a bit of a size on my right foot. But I found a good way to, to solve that. Um, tipped off by an article I read a little while ago is to cut chunks out of the back of my heel. Oh yeah, shoe. in the back of the shoe. Um, yeah, and um, I read it. It was an article about haggling deformity, and I thought, oh god, yep. maybe that's what I've got but I didn't match up all the symptoms. And, yeah. But what they said in the solution there was to just take a knife and just cut out the big chunks on the inside of the heel. And that just had such a difference. So it just relieves the pressure of the, on, on the burst of the heel. And that, that my right heel is actually going pretty well now too. So, so touch wood, body's going pretty well, albeit yep. getting a bit older. Yeah. And then I, I wanted to I, also I, go over um, – oh, sorry – I was going to say, yeah, like like every run, I've had you know, every injury under the book from ITB to plantar fasciitis to to glute problems and, and hamstring problems, you name it. So it sort of stands in good stead as a coach when someone comes to you say, oh, I've got this is yep. this is sort of, I think oh, I think I know what that is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like and when you've been in the game, um, you know, um, since yeah, 1981, uh, like um, yeah, you, you you run a lot of K's, so. Um, yeah, the body's been through a bit, so you would have experienced experienced quite a quite a few pains. And um, often, tr- when I'm treating sort of more experienced runners, feel feel like um, they've got a pretty good grasp of um, what's what because um, they've they've experienced um, a, a fair bit of the the aches and pains that it takes to to um, be be in this sport. Um, yeah, I wanted to just go on to um, two bays. 28k um um and your experience with that like you've done it a number of times uh uh did you find the 28k um you alluded alluded to it a little bit before that um it's it's similar in a way to um the six foot track in the blue mountains but it's just half the distance uh yeah tell us about your experience there yeah two days i've known about it for probably 10 or 15 years just through some friends who did it and um Back in the days, I think I must have thought it was an official event, or maybe the first one or two of the official events they did. Um, they did as well and talked about how well, it, how good it was. And I kind of known of Rowan for for a few years because he was in, um, dabbled in some triathlons for a little while, so I knew who he was. And yep. um, and then he was taking over the running of it, and people were just raving about how, what how good the event was, just in terms of the, the just the vibe and the atmosphere and the spirit and the course. And so. I went down and did it in 2012, I think was my first time I did it, and um, which I think was maybe the second second year of its sort of official running. Um, and yeah, really enjoyed it. It was, it was 
yeah, it, it's a very runnable course. It's an absolutely beautiful course. There's the the range of terrain that it's got from the steep uphill to start to a little bit of twisting single track over the top of the vast seat and then some long flowing downhills and, and then or some steep downhills and then some flowing sections through through Green's Bush, yep. which is which is just spectacular. Um, and I've been fortunate a few times to be early enough to to be scaring away the kangaroos who are grazing yeah. as we come through. And yeah, that's also on the lookout for snakes because they will warn you about the snakes that they see there. Um, yep. I haven't come across any of fortunately. Yep. Um, so yeah, and then the finish that's um, at, at Cape, um, Cape Shank, where you can see the lighthouse coming at you from, from a little distance off. And yep. um, you still got to get up that bloody big set of stairs that I don't know <laughs> if anybody, anybody's ever run up. I haven't run up them in any five times I've done it. Uh-huh. And yeah, it's just a and it's just a great, great course. It's not a it's it's a trail course, but it's not a technical course. Um, I've done it in a range of shoes, from from road shoes to racing flats to the trail shoes, and um, each one of those has pros and cons. But you know, you don't need to be kitted out in your in your hardest trail gear with with ski poles or walking poles. Yep. it's not that kind of not not that kind of course. Um, yeah. Then then there's the atmosphere of it, and you know, it, it's an extension really of Rowan's personality which is which which makes it unique that it's not a like a uh, a clinical event like a you know some other events are where they just don't have much personality this one really does have personality from and that comes from Rowan really from his hit from him and his 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 style and his culture and you know what he likes and um his his eccentricity if you like comes yep. across in in the way people dress up and the fact he He's known over years from for doing runs in um, board shorts, so that's why yeah. you get priority start for wearing board shorts and Hawaiian shirts, um, yeah. and that's all the way through the support on the course and the um, and the aid stations. They all get dressed up, and yeah, it's just so much good about it. Um, and it's it's hard, but it's not impossible. You know, that's the thing. It, it's a it, comparing it to the six foot track is kind of unfair because six foot track is really, really a very difficult course. Yeah. Two bays is very runnable. Um, uh-huh. It's a challenging course, um, but it's very, it's very doable and very achievable. So I, I love it. Um, sure. And so, you, yeah. you've won it before? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was very yeah, chuffed. Um, so first year I went there and came third and behind Dan Hornery and um, Jay Philpotts. And then uh, in 2014, I fronted up, and that was perhaps when I started to look at the entry list a bit closely to see who was there, and who because he so he tend to pick out some some names and yeah, up and a couple of those people weren't there, and all of a sudden found myself near the front, and there was this one other guy that year called Barry Rogers who I had some neck and neck races with, and um, <clears throat> whenever we race each other, we just test just test trips off each other, and because we just you know that kind of rivalry that you have with someone who you wouldn't see very often, but you know when they're there, it's like, oh my god, this is going to be a heart race. And we were we were neck and neck for the whole way up Arthur's seat, down the other side, through the <laughs> roads, through the portion. Along the way, I was leading, and he was just always on my shoulder, on my heels, and my back, of my shoulder. I think, oh my god, how's this going to end out? <laughs> I, I can't sprint. I don't know if he can sprint. What's yep. going to happen? And we we crossed Borneo Road. Yep. And that's that only about five k, six k to go. Yeah, that's right. And I think, oh my God, how's this going to turn out? Because I wanted to win, but I just, but I just didn't know how. It was, and but he was—he's a really nice guy, and he was offering me water bottles along the way, and his kids were drinking candy and drinks and stuff. Yeah. And we got to Bonio Road, and perhaps that was his failing. There was his kids handing him a drink, and it slowed him down, and for for yep. a few steps, and I got out of sight. Yeah. And in that last twisting section, once you're out of sight from someone, 
um, you know, the, the elastic stretches a little yeah. bit. So I was running along, I was looking around, you know, tripping over, looking around literally. Um, and I couldn't see him and, and I won. It was, it was a hard, it was such a hard race and he was only 15 seconds behind me, which was, which was, yeah, it was, it was an exciting race. That's what you want. You know, it's when you're in a, like a purple, um, the zone and everything hurts, but everything's going so smoothly at the same time. And it was just a really good race and I was yeah, super fit and that was a real, real thrill to, anytime you, if you ever win a race, it's a thrill. So, yeah. Um, and um, yeah. do you know what you ran that year? Um, yeah, I, I ran I ran one fifty two oh seven that year. So um, I was forty four then. So I was pretty yep. pretty happy with that time. That time stacks up pretty well still these days. And yeah, because um, what the men's record is by Steve Deneen in one forty six. Yeah, that that is a really um, I won't say untouchable, but that is a a super super record time. You know, that is. Yeah. Um, that was in 2013, and um, there was a really, really quality field that year. I think the top 10 were all in sub 155, pretty much. Yeah, okay. And, and um, yeah, it's a, if someone beats that, it'll be a super, super run. And there's two guys this year, George Headley, who won it, who won it, two guys this year, George Headley, who won it this year, 148. Um, and Michael oh, so that's Kernahan, pretty good. Michael Kernahan, who was entered this year but got injured before, so he didn't miss it. So, I think those two guys, if you look through the, the entrance from what I can see, they'll be the they'll be the people in the front. Um, yep. to that. Um, yeah, if they get close to 146, I'll be really impressed and really surprised um, uh-huh. because Steve Deneen just had a day out of the box that day, um, as did um, Anna Thompson when she ran the record in um, 2014 of 202. Um, I mean, they're both quality runners, uh, and it just shows that road runners can transition across really very readily to trails and run well there. Yeah, actually, I saw um, when I was practicing last Sunday on the course, I saw uh, Michael Kernahan running over the course. Um, oh, yeah, so um, yeah, now that, that those two will will um, be a really good match because um, George Headley, I think, I'm pretty sure he ran a 224 marathon at Gold Coast this year. So, yeah, they're both pretty fit. What about in the women's um, this year? Uh, have you had a, managed to have a bit of a look at the 28K? Uh, um, yeah, yeah, I have. And I must say I'm a little bit embarrassed. I, I, I looked through and I didn't pick out many people that really that yep. I recognised a lot and I'm, I'm ashamed that I didn't, perhaps I don't know the names quite as well. But Simone Brick is the standout. Yeah, um, <clears throat> she won it this year, and she's had um, she had a you know a very up roller coaster year this year. But she's ending on a bit of a high. I think she's still on an eternal holiday over in Peru somewhere, uh-huh. going by Strava. So she'll be the one to beat. But then a couple of names that I noticed was Bernadette Dornan. She's um, she and her sister, uh, Elizabeth Knott's racing this year, next year, but Bernadette is, and she's a solid runner. Ingrid Morrison and Bev Thomas, who is uh, uh, almost my age, but still very competitive in any, um, any, any distance she, she lines up for. And they are the only ones that really jumped out. And, and I'm sorry if I've missed anybody, but I had a good look and um, I was just not quite as familiar with some of the names here as I am on the men's side. Yeah. Now, um, you're also... Um, yeah, you coach the Love the Run um, group and, um, yeah, which um, – so you're coaching a lot of recreational runners. Um, how, how did you eventually get into that and um, how's that going? 
Yeah, I've been coaching that group. So that's been my group for about 10 years. Um, I've been coach, been a coach for probably 13 or 14 years um, in triathlons. And these days, just admitting it for running because that's really where my heart is <clears throat> that I enjoy. And there we've had, we've got some, the, all groups go through ebbs and flows and uh, ours are perhaps on a little bit of an ebb at the moment just for, for a couple of reasons. But the people in there who come along are people who just like running. Um, and so I've got certain numbers of people. We get perhaps 10 to 15 people. On a, on a good night, but they're, they're, they're friends as well as they are um, runners and athletes. Um, yep. I, I, I respect them for what they do in the lives that they lead, and, um, but they still come to me for my guidance as a coach, which is really humbling. Um, <clears throat> so I, just, I love the process of coaching. Um, and sometimes you think, gosh, I'd like to have some really top flight runners, um, and they have different needs. Um, but it sort of it, de- it depends on where you're uh, so what you're looking for in a group and so sort of what yep. type, kind of group you have. Um, I've never sort of advertised much. It's just sort of very organic growth. Um, mm-hmm. And I like, I like the people who come along um, and I like the coaching process of working with the people just to help them with their goals. And a lot of people don't lack motivation. They just practice, they just lack a little bit of structure and um, which, which perhaps I can bring. Um, yep. So you know, and I try to match their, where they're at with the with the advice that I give. So, yep. you know, some different people, depending where they are, sort of are seeking different kinds of information. And so, if you can provide them with what they are looking for at different times, then um, to help their go their journey, then then that's a successful coaching process. And the more I've gone on in coaching, the more I've realised that it's not about the detail of the sessions and what you do. It's more, in fact, if anything, I've made my my sessions simpler. Yep. Um, it's more about just the, the fundamentals of what, what, how do you guide them and what you get them to do at different points. Um, what kind of stimulus do they need at different points? And the sessions and the details are just, they're, they're trivial, really. It's, it's, a, it's a fundamental of the relationship and, and the, their, 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 their structure, to, well, I guess their, what their goals are that, that guide the coaching and that sort of differentiates coaches, I think. Yeah, yeah. Like I know, I know um, a few of the best coaches I've I've had. Um, they've they've been more a life coach, um, really, uh, rather than like um, they've known um, a lot about my life. Um, you know, where whether it was uh, work, um, uh, yeah, relationships, um, and the things that activities that I was doing throughout the day. Um, so they they were definitely far and beyond just um, setting myself for. A training session for the day um uh with your group uh what days do you run and uh where do you mainly go for your runs and uh is that is it is it more than just the 10 and 15 people each do you do a bit of online coaching um yeah tell us more yeah well i do i do have some i really like to see athletes um, at least you know, once every week or two just to just so you can check in and look them in the eye and see how they're going um, yeah. <clears throat> that sort of feedback you don't get through online um, I know myself with, with sessions that I post on Strava they might look good but really you, if, if you look if you were there at a session you think mm, that's, it, it, things don't look things are not always how they seem on paper or on a, yep. on a, on a GPS GPS upload um, <laughs> so that's why I really like to be able to see see them and see how they're traveling, how they're moving and what's just what sort of mood they're in. So um, 
in some ways that limits my coaching and um, because I don't like to take online athletes, um, except if I've, I've had a history with them and I know them quite well and I can sort of you know, have a good, I already have good communication with them. Um, yep. So, but I have, you know, sometimes I think, gosh, I would be good to expand that, that field a little bit. Um, there's a lot of competition these days in online coaching. Yep. Um, and I have to think, well, what am I trying to achieve from that? You know, I need to balance it out with, family life and demands and the time that would take as well. Um, but the coaching I do, I have two sessions, one on Monday night, and they're quite different the sessions. One on Monday um, up here in Clifton Hill at our, at our running, running track. And what I want to do there is just to make it a session that people in the community can come along to. I've found that running groups are very, very geographical based. People will go to something that's close by. Um, quite a lot, quite often. Um, it's only the dedicated few that will travel to a particular group to do sessions. But yep. if you can create a session in a <clears throat> in a place where people can readily get to, then they'll come along. So it's a bit like you build it and they will come. Um, yep. So that's and in the Clifton Hill, the, the Studley Park area, there's really not many running groups. So what I want to what I'm trying to do is set up a group or a time where people can come along and join. And we do maybe eight or nine kilometres and. Sometimes we do it on the track, and in winter we do because we turn the lights on. And, and for the women in particular, that's that's really appealing that they feel safe and um, and supported in that closed environment with the lights on. Um, and summer we go over to over the road to Studley Park and Yarra Bend Park and do some run, do some sessions over there. So it's it's I'm trying to make it a real community running group on Monday night. Um, then on Thursday night it's, we train at Olympic Park or the old Olympic Park. Um, down by the tennis centre, where that's more of our, perhaps my harder core runners, yeah. from on a real scale. So they're the ones who are perhaps a bit more serious about their running, and the session's longer and harder on Thursday night. Um, and it's typically a track-based session. Sometimes we do hills over on the tan. Um, but yeah, so try a bit of a contrast between the sessions. There's not a lot of overlap. There's some overlap of runners between both sessions, but um, I, I really want to, you know going to do another concerted focus on after Christmas on the Monday night, just because I really want to build that community spirit um, through that group. And an extension of that is through Collingwood Harriers, where I'm on the committee as our winter coordinator. And I want to try and broaden our definition of, of who comes along to the club and who associates themselves with the club. And they're not always people who want to strap on an athletic number and run the XCR series. They're just people who want somewhere to go to and be part of a group. Um, and be part of a bigger, something bigger than just themselves as a runner. Um, and so, if we can do that under the the umbrella of the of the club structure and the club definition, then I think that's good for good for running in the community because people will see us as not Collingwood Harriers who are hardcore um, track and field and cross country runners, but they're Collingwood Harriers who are just a group of runners. Some of some of which to those competitive the series competitions, the others who might just want to run and or do park runs. Yep. So really these days seeing there's there's much more future and focus in the community runners and recreational runners yep. um, and trying to um, support them. Not so much tapping into them because I see it's a business opportunity because that's that's far from my objective. It's more about um, giving them an avenue to come and enjoy running and, and experience the, the beauty and the benefits that it, that, it, that it gives to them, that it can offer. Yeah, no, it's, it's so good to hear um, that because it's so good to hear that there's groups like that and, and people promoting that kind of um, chance for people to join the sport because it's such a good sport. But like 
I definitely feel like a lot of people, um, I don't know, they that if they're scared off by the idea of, um, like, they definitely think that you have to be like, um, you know, a bit more into it to to run, but like to to provide some, um, you know, some not some training sessions where the community can feel like they can all do it and get involved and and benefit from running. Um, it's 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 so good to hear that 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 um you're doing that and like if someone was more like is interested to um find out more about the group um where would they go i'll just look up our website so it's lovetherun.com.au so um, yeah i've had this that's been the group name for a while and um we're quite a few people come through our doors over the years but yeah it's just a yeah like 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 the name hopefully um uh, suggest we're just people who love to run or love the run um and yep. you know we have different come from different backgrounds and walks of life but that commonality is uh, is running nice um now i wanted to chat about a little bit about balancing life with having kids and um uh your son he, um is a type one diabetic um and uh i've heard that um you have to check his blood sugar levels 12 to 15 times a day. Um, uh, like that, that's like having kids, um, I understand is like a, a fair commitment in itself, but um, uh, managing a condition like that is another commitment in itself too. Yeah. So diabetes is, um, I didn't know a lot about it before that he was diagnosed. Yep. Um, so nearly five years ago and it's, uh, he was, previously diagnosed with, with celiac disease and before they had asthma. So we've had a lot of experience with, with the hospital. Um, with a, if they had a, a frequent flyers card, we'd be, we'd be well stamped on that one. Yeah. Um, you know, diabetes is a, it's sort of funny. I was comparing to someone the other day to like having a child for the, to having a child. And when you have a baby, you, you walk out of the hospital and you go home and you sort of think, God, well, what do I do now? But I think your innate sort of, um, just knowledge and understanding about what to do just takes over. You know, the mum feeds the baby and you look after it, you change it and do yep. that sort of thing um, to keep it alive. But with diabetes, it's just like, oh, my God, we've got this kid now who's completely dependent on us um, for him to survive in, uh-huh. in, in this, with this medical condition. So it does require 24 hours a day, seven-day-a-week monitoring and, and vigilance and um, around what he's eating, his activity, um, what his blood sugars are doing and how they respond to those things and um, and so, yes, we need to check his string of finger prick, you know, 12 to 15 times a day. Um, and Eddie's so used to it now that he, he he doesn't even wake up when we do it overnight. So Oh, wow, we, really? Yeah, so every night we're checking him at least once. Last night I was up twice at 12.30 and 2.45 to check him. Um, it's the last thing I do before I go to bed. And the first thing I do when I get up is to check his blood sugar levels just to make sure they're okay. And he's got a pump that he wears with him all the time and a, and a sensor on the back of his arm, which is monitoring his blood glucose levels. Uh-huh. So, um, and it, it sort of affects on other aspects of our life that you know, he can never, or not for a while, might be able to go to play dates with friends without one of us being nearby, just in case something goes wrong. And monitoring, we need to weigh all the food that he eats to quantify how many carbs are in it and adjust for that. And so it's 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 nonstop, but it's part of our life and um, something that we live with and. For Eddie, if you saw him, you wouldn't know any different. He's just a kid who runs around. He's a seven-year-old, you know, in normal in every other way. And um, you get a dose of perspective when you go to the children's hospital, to the specialist clinics, and you see 
all the other kids there with really very impacting conditions that they've got that are lifelong. And it doesn't matter what side of the tracks they're from. Um, they've got these conditions that they live with. And even at any school, there's a kid with um, uh, cerebral palsy who's in a wheelchair 24 hours a day. So think, well, whatever he's got, you know, he's lucky that he's got technology and, and, and good care on his side to make his life okay. But certainly it, um, for us, it's, it's, it's a constant thing. And, um, but you know we we've, we've deal, we're dealing with it and he's um he's going really well at the moment but um in terms of living with kids you know it's they they they're good fun you know they have they work and they take time and effort but yeah as much as they learn from you you can learn from them and things I've appreciated from the kids is watch you watch them grow and you and you watch them move and just if you want to see how how to do a perfect squat just watch a kid they can, <laughs> they can put their ass on the ground and stand up without using their hands it's just incredible and the way they can. They can bend and put their foot behind their head and yep. still smile is just incredible. And um, and the way in a, in a playground they can just they walk and then they'll just run just because you know not because they're rushing to get somewhere they'll just run because that's what they feel like doing and just that that freedom of movement that they have and that that innocence and that you know un- complete unawareness is um is really is, is really refreshing and is really humbling to know that they're, they're dependent on you and they come to you for such and such and they come to you for a cuddle or a hug or something like that. And you know, for however hard it might be and trying to integrate them into life and work your life around them, yeah. those are, that's the upside parts of it is the, is the warm and fuzzy bits of it. So, yeah. uh, logistically, it does take planning around tag teaming and you know where you're going to be, making sure someone's at home and me getting up at 4.30 in the morning so I'm back by 6.30 when they're getting up. So... I haven't missed any of their day and um, just being there for them. That's sort of, that's kind of the hard work, but you know, it's, it's sort of pales and my story is no different to anybody else with, with kids. But um, yeah, if but I like can. I, I've, um, I've seen a lot of people, a lot of runners have, have kids and then the running sort of falls by the wayside a little bit, but um, like watching your running and, and your, like how um, involved you are with, with the, um, coaching and and the athletic scene in general in Victoria, like uh, I feel like you've um, still been able to manage it quite well and and still be able to um, still perform at quite a good level. Um, like what what would some of the what would what would be your how have you managed it? Like what what are probably um, your takeaways or tips that have worked well for you? Uh, well, forget about your social life. That's a good question. <laughs> um, so your social life is your kids and your family. Um, that's a, that's a good, that frees up a lot of time for you. Yep. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, look, it's sort of, it's, it's compromise. You've only got 24 hours in a day and you've only got a certain amount of energy you can, you can spread across it. It's sort of, you've got to choose where you, where you spend your energy. Just like, you know, with kids, you've got to, choose your battles with which, which things you battle with your kids about, you know, trying to get them to pick up, pick up the toys versus doing something else. You pick your battles. So you sort of pick the way you, you choose to spend your time and your effort um, and prioritize it that way and realize that you can't keep on doing everything. You know, it's just not possible. You can't do everything and be to everything to all people. Um, and for me, I, I, if I didn't exercise or run or do sport or something, if it wasn't running, it would be something else then I'm probably not going to be as good a person as if I yep. gave that up and because um, it's part of part of who I am. Mm-hmm. It doesn't define me, but it's part of part of what makes me happy and makes me function and you know, has some drawbacks. But so that's probably the, the a big thing is just 
prioritizing and understanding you know, what, what's important to you and how can you use your time and then having teamwork in your, in your with your spouse and at home you yep. know you've got to um you can't be don't be selfish you've got to you know i try and make sure in my mind that i'm at least carrying my load i try to do more um because i think if i'm if i'm trying to do more then maybe i'm sort of meeting the <laughs> meeting a standard that's okay at home um and so it's always yeah try to over 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 service and if you wait in what i'm doing at home um yep yeah so there's, there's everyone everyone has different routines but you work out a routine and just yeah, take yeah. take appreciate what, what you can yeah um how often are you up at four four thirty? like you you're obviously up um checking um eddie's blood sugar levels um quite a few times at night but how often are you up at four thirty squeezing squeezing a run in um I just um, on Sunday went for a really early uh, run um, to fit um, my two bays training in before I went to the President's Cup golf, and I ran with um, this, uh, uh, John Dutton, um, a friend of mine, and he he's got a couple of kids, and that's why he was up at the crack of dawn um, with me. Um, but yeah, and that, uh, after that run, I was like, I'm never doing that again. Uh, but um, yeah, what what's your? Did you do that often or? Yeah, five days a week, pretty much. Okay. Sort of, up, but Monday to Friday, I'm up sort of between four fifteen and four thirty. Um, out the door, I allow myself half an hour to get out the door because one part of it is just sort of getting yourself, you know, cognitively awake and moving, and then the other part is physically getting moving. We takes about ten minutes so of, of of walking up and down the street and doing some drills and things to, before I even actually take the first step to run. So yeah. I allow myself half an hour from when I get up to start running. So that's Monday to Friday because. Because I'll get home and then we have the next opportunity with kids drop off and pick up from school and work and so on to run would be sort of half eight at night. So it's that one window of time I've got that I know I've got that I can sort of, you know, no one, it's very unlikely it's going to be impacted. Whereas yep. if I leave it for later in the day, who knows what could happen. Um, yep. And then on the weekend, the sleeping might be maybe quarter past five or so. Just um, still not, yep. not cutting into the day too much. <laughs> and then, um, so how many hours of sleep are you getting? Well, Garmin tells me I get around six and a half to six hours forty-five. So that that doesn't take into account the getting up, you know, once or twice a night to check yep. eating, trying to get back to sleep and stuff. So yep. yeah, not as not as much as I'd like. Like you know, you you might you might ask your patients how much how often do you stretch or stuff. They probably say not as much as they like. Yeah, <laughs> yep. they should, and I'm the same with sleep. Yeah. <laughs> well, this kind of like works quite nicely onto. Uh, the next thing I wanted to chat about and like you turned 50 this year and um, there's a fair bit of literature lately over the last few years that has sort of suggested that as we get older like every year after 30 we our must our peak muscle mass sort of declines every year and um, so they that a lot of people are that this in thing at the moment is that we, we should be doing some strength training during the week um, to to keep our muscles um, in that good good state of condition, so that they can manage, so we can manage um, the the running load as we get older. Um, like, given that you're you're only getting six hours sleep and you're having to wake up at the at, at, at you know at the crack of dawn to get your runs done, uh, are you fitting any strength training in to try to maintain your body? Uh, yeah, at all. Uh, yeah, and that's been for me over the last three to four years. The big thing that I have done is in, 
<laughs> incorporate strength work. Um, invested yep. some money on buying some gym gear. So I've got, and we just bought a new set in the backyard recently. So I've got my gym out the back, which has, is really well set up. I've got squat racks and pull up bars and trap nice. bar. And so it's really, it's, it's a gym basically. Um, cool. And that's been, that's an investment in myself, which I'm not sure how much it added up to be. Um, but and I do that. I make sure I do that. In fact, I'm going to do that after we talk now. Let's go out to the gym. Um, yep. Or the jet because it's the gym shed, and um, <laughs> and that's 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 been really important um, for me in terms of the consistency that I've been able to achieve, and 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 I'm always I'm now at a point where I know it's really important, but I really want to, I want to run as well. But trying to lift heavy and run well don't go well at the same time. You've got to the hardest thing then is to try and fit the things into your week in a balanced way. So yep. you can say yes, I'm going to strength train, but then you need to like I was saying before with life, you can't do everything. You can't yep. have your cake and eat it. You've got to, if you're doing strength training, you've got to have a little give in other places with your bike, with your, um, with your run load and how you approach that and how you fit it together and what days you do them on and how you, how you slot the things together. And that's, that takes a real, that takes skill and, and practice and just, and then one week's not the same as the next week. You know, this week I've, I've had a bit of a cold over the last week or so, so I haven't done quite as much as I want, but I want to get back in the gym. But I know if I, get back in the gym and do it too hard, then I'm old, so I don't recover quite as well. Yep. I can't do a big good session and then expect I'm going to be okay in another day or two. It takes longer than that. So it's a, it's a balancing act on all fronts you know, as you get older, or yeah. all, all through life, but sort of different things are highlighted at different ages. But so strength training is really, really important. I'm a big advocate for it and lifting heavy, not just lightweight, yep. lifting heavy shit, you know, kind of yeah. stuff. <laughs> and um, like, so with the, um, aging process as you're now a master's runner um, what have you experienced in terms of performance and then um, uh, even injury rates and uh, uh, how have you adjusted your training as you've got older or what have you found that you've had to do? Oh gosh tell you what um, with age comes a big serving of humble pie that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, funnily enough, I had my best year running at age 43. I was setting career PBs. I did my half marathon PB at 43. And if I hadn't got the flu before Melbourne Marathon, I might have set a marathon PB at 43. Uh-huh. So um, it's still very possible to, to run well um, into your early to mid-40s, for sure. And people are showing that now in, in athletics. And there's people running really well in their 50s, like Grant Simpson is setting career PBs in his 50s. Like, my yep. God, how are you doing that? Yep. Um, for me, I found I was really running really well up to 45, and then 45 was a turning point. It just things fell off a cliff then. And um, um, from a performance point of view, that things what was a what was a pace I could hold quite readily became a pace that was really quite challenging, and that's become exponentially the case as as I've got to 50. Um, okay. And that's perhaps a little bit because I still do need to adjust my training load a bit and and balance it out a bit more and. Um, and there's literature which will support that higher intensity as you get older is really important. I mean, it depends on, on your training background as well. So for, for someone with a lifetime miles of myself, I really need to focus more on the speed work and, and that's kind of hills and, and you know, twos and 400 reps, for example, than I do yep. on doing you know, long tempo yep. runs, even long runs for that example, for that case, because you know, what's another long run going to do for me really? Um, yeah. I might just need maybe just to do one a month. Um, yeah. And because those, those really wear me out quite a bit 
Um, whereas uh-huh. if I can do a short run and go to the track and rip out some 200s, I feel a lot better after doing that than I do after doing some other sessions. So it's sort of balancing out what, what you feel good doing, uh, but also um, from a performance point of view, realizing you don't need to keep on doing all the things you've done in the past. Yeah, because, because you've got that lifetime of fitness behind you. That takes that's right. a little bit less to tap into that, I suppose. That's right. And some of those other, some sessions are more fatiguing than others. You can't do the big sessions. Um, yep. If you say, oh, I'll just do one session a week and I'll just do, you know, speed and some tempo in that same session. Well, that's, that's a double whammy, you know. Uh-huh. It's, it's better to take little bite-sized chunks, um, I think. And, <clears throat> and um, you know, unfortunately, the week of seven days will be greater as nine days because then you could have maybe – Two hard sessions in a long run, and have two easy days after each one. So, but anyway, it's not. So you, you work around it, and um, it's yeah. But I think as I got older, and I'm really sort of this year, I haven't run as well as I would have liked to have. Um, perhaps because I focused a bit too much on on volume and miles, and um, so next year I want to actually cut my you know, consciously cut my miles back, um, and be more focused on on speed on on doing 400s and, and some hill reps. And yes, I'll do some occasional tempos, but I think I'll get more benefit out of doing those other sessions. Um, I had a little had a little yeah. goal that I sort of in my mind a couple of years ago, thinking, well, I wonder if I could run a 400 in under 60 seconds. You know? Oh, nice, yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's pie in the sky because, you know, right now I'd be busting my ass to break 70 seconds, but yeah. still, <laughs> just that, that feeling of, yes, I, maybe I can run fast and that's, that feeling of being smooth and swift is is really quite appealing now. Um, uh-huh. So whereas doing long, me doing long stuff is less appealing. So two days, sort of, I'm doing it because I love the race, but yep. that's the only reason I'm really right now thinking, you know, I, I actually prefer to do short, faster stuff. Um, yep. What other goals through. do you have sort of going forward for next year then, like for the future? Yeah, well, I'd like to... Um, I, did a, I did a couple of marathons this year, which, which went okay. I did Berlin, which was a great experience and it was a big family trip but didn't go yep. quite so well but so i'm not going to do another marathon in the foreseeable future <laughs> yep. so but i like to get like my, my 10k down to low 34 i think you know, i was like in my mind i think i can do that um my my 5k down to sub 17 and um, i'd like to do a marathon in sub 75 so that would be if i can get those tick those ones off i'd be really happy so in sub 17 um, or I need to do, if I'm going to do 34, I need to be doing sort of 16 and a half, really. Um, yeah. And then sub 70, sub 75 for a half marathon would be would be great for the year. Nice. So like after running, like um, so when, when in 2012 ish, like when you felt like you were in the prime career, uh, uh, the prime of your career when you was what was it, like 43. Um, mm-hmm. What keeps driving you to still keep um, pushing yourself for times that are inferior to what you were doing at 43? Well, it's the good op- good thing about turning 50 is yep. in my mind I've got a blank slate of um, PBs. Because yep. <laughs> um, uh, in late 40s, I was still 40-something, but now I'm 50. I've actually I've got a, in my yep. mind, I'm saying well, I'm going to have set, try and set some decade Decade uh-huh. PBs now, um, but I just love the process of training. I love being fit. I love the challenge of trying to slow the slowdown. You know, I'm slowing down, but what can I do to slow <laughs> that down? Or you know, I'm yep. not going to get fast. I'm not going to run anything like I used to in the past. But how can I maintain what I've got? You know, yeah, I can that. If that went, if I could do that, and 
achieve some of that, that would be really good because I just love the process of trying it out. And that's, I think also what helps, helps a coach is to be always curious about what works for you and what you see other people do and how does that relate and seeing other my peers and being motivated by them, um, yeah. how, how they're sustaining their performance and how they're achieving their performance and um, whether they're older or younger. And um, maybe if I try that and balance this out and do those things. So I'm always looking ahead um, and being excited about, Yes, I'm slowing down, but I just I just want to get out there and get at it. You know, it's just it's yep. fire that's still burning, and while it's still burning, you know, I'm going to keep on keep on uh, stoking it up. Hopefully, yeah. No, that well, that, um, so you'll be a life lifetime runner as much as I can until my body fails me. But yep. um, I'm on a good run. I clocked over 700, 700, uh, 700 day running streak on Tuesday, so that was oh, a good wow. running, a good point to get to. Yeah. Um, it's very hard the day after races, especially after marathon. <laughs> it's very hard to keep the streak going, but um, you set a minimum and you achieve that. Um, so, yeah, I'll be a lifetime runner, I think. Campbell, uh, I want to wrap it up now because um, I've taken up so much of your time and I know you've got to get to your, your gym session in the shed out the back. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you, um, uh, really, really enjoyed your stories and um, – really your passion really comes through um as you talk um so i think a lot of people will really enjoy listening to it as well um uh, is there anything else you wanted to add or is, is anyone you wanted to to thank or uh uh anything else yeah uh no i just think i'm good on you for setting up a, your podcast and your and your network that you've created just to in the same yeah. sense to um encourage runners um whatever level they are and whatever injury status they're at, <laughs> which is yep. sort of your perpetual field to keep, get to allow them to keep going. You know, the worst thing as a runner is to be told you can't run. Um, so to give people that hope that, yes, maybe you can't run today, but, you know, you, 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 I'm pretty sure you can be running you know, soon. And that's, I think that's really a positive thing to do is to, is, not, is to keep that hope going for people who run and, and who want to run, who think they can't run. Um, so, yeah, I, that's, I just I love people, and whether it's running, running's not everybody's thing. So yeah. Whether it's bike riding or walking or rock climbing or whatever it could be, um, just to get just to move and just to do something and be passionate about something and have some some drive to achieve something, um, whether whether it's intrinsically or ex, or extrinsically. I think it's what what keeps us keeps us moving forwards and not just getting into a into indulgence. Exactly. Um, like, and and you've you've experienced it yourself, and I've experienced it myself. Is like. There's so much um, that running and, and or being involved in some form of exercise um, and sport that it just teaches you about life, whether it's resilience. Um, uh, it just teaches you so many good qualities. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I love promoting um, exercise and, and I love that you, you're, you're a fellow promoter as well. <laughs> Yeah, in terms of people to thank, I have to thank my wife because um, yep. <clears throat> with the tag teaming we do, the, she, that, that facilitates me running. So as much as I get up early, um, it's yep. only because she's home, um, a couple of, snuggled up in bed, <laughs> being, being in the house with, and being there if the kids wake up or when the kids wake up. So um, so without her, I couldn't do it. And then um, perhaps in terms of one other person who's been for me a mentor through my life, and he won't listen yes. to this, my old swimming coach, Buddy Portia, who in terms of being – um, sort of a, a role model. His 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 role was really not to tell me things. His role was to ask me questions, and the questions that he asked are ones that you think, oh my god, that's quite a question. You know, it's the ones that really cut 
cut to the cut to the truth, cut to the heart that are the most revealing if you really consider them and ponder what are they actually asking and what is that revealing for you. Um, if you do that with honesty, then I think that's having someone who asks those questions of you, whether you like them or not, is and whether you even answer them, is something that really helps you. And people will work in different ways, but for me it was the questions that Paddy used to ask me and he used to just, I think, be able to look at me in the morning at swimming training and just know where I was at and what I was, where I was up to and um, that's the kind of person you want in your life who can just be there as a rock and a, and a, and a board that you can bounce things off or who, who reflects things back to you. Oh, so, so good. All right, yeah. mate. Um, well, we'll wrap up there. Um, thanks so much again for, um, yeah, agreeing to be part of the podcast and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll um, catch up um, in the not too distant future and, um, yeah, thanks for providing such um, a good show. No, I thank you and good luck for your training and good luck to everybody else doing two bays or whatever else it might be or an event, even if it's not a race. Just, um, yeah, good luck. Thanks, Campbell. All right. No worries. I'll see you Thanks later. Bye. See ya. A quick plug just to finish. I'm actually a running physiotherapist by trade. So I've been a physiotherapist since 2009 so a good 10 years now. I work from Southern Suburbs Physio Centre in Parkdale three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then I also work from home in Frankston on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So if you want to book in with me at Southern Suburbs, just go onto the Southern Suburbs website online or call 95842000. And if you want to book with me on at home in Frankston, then just go to my website and you can book online. Uh, a bit about my experience as a running physiotherapist, I've gone on the last six years of World Cross Country Teams, so that's a event that's on every two years, so I've done the last three versions of that um, as the physiotherapist for the Australian team at the World Cross Country, so Last year I went to Denmark, I've been to Uganda and I've been to China with that team. I've also been to Flagstaff three times in 2015, 16 and 19 as a physiotherapist for um, a, a distance running camp funded by AFS Australia. Last year it was mainly consisted of the Paralympic distance team that were training for the Doha World Championships So I've had a lot of experience with elite runners and through my experience at the clinic, my caseload now is about 60% runners. So I've either seen most running injuries or had most running injuries myself. And so I I now am quite a competent running physiotherapist and I back myself in terms of, you know, most injuries and and knowing what to do and and diagnosing and... and, uh, yeah, so if you've got any running pains or troubles that are really getting you down, then don't feel afraid to give me a call. All right, that's enough from me. See you guys.